You know, when I see that title package, I'm, I'm reminded always that one of our high school interns actually developed that for us. Isn't that a gifted thing for him to do? Incredible. Thank you. Today we're talking about an important topic, and, and I, I mean it can be life-changing. Uh, last week, Pastor Garrett came up and shared with us uh, the genius of gratitude talking about uh, perspective. If, if you did not hear that, uh, every time he preaches, I think this is the best sermon he ever gave, and then the next time, this is the best sermon he ever gave. You need to go back and listen to that. That will change uh, your family, it'll change your health, it'll change your marriage. Uh, it's, it's just really a powerful message, and, and I would encourage you to go back. And, and these are linked because after perspective comes optimism. And it's called The Genius of Gratitude. The entire series is called The Genius of Gratitude. Not meaning that there's an exceptional person who, uh, you know, is extremely intelligent, more intelligent than the average bear. You know, I, I'm not talking about that kind of genius. I'm talking about the genius of a concept. The genius of an attitude that will change everybody's life. You don't have to be superior in intellect to understand the genius of gratitude. In fact, I call it an elusive insight. You know, it's lost on most of us. But once you gain this insight, uh, it will change your life. And I pray that that's true for you. Uh, we just came back last week. We, we arrived late Saturday night. So I was privileged to sit here with my wife, Carol. At the, uh, at the service last Sunday and listen to Pastor Garrett teach. Uh, aren't we blessed to have him as a teacher? Man, I just... <laughs> incredible. Incredible. I'm jealous of his ability to teach. Be, just be straight up honest with you about that. Just an incredible message. And uh, it was after traveling for 12 hours. We, we left Boise, Idaho. We went out to visit our, our oldest son and his family out there. Uh, so we left about 10 in the morning, got home about 10 at night. It's that kind of a day. You know, you, you fly down to Vegas, you watch everybody drag themselves out of the casinos, you know, and, and board your plane, and y you pray that you're going to have a lot of extra seats, and, and, and then you fly back, and you know it's going to be a long flight. Now, the problem with this flight is I always take things to read, but I'd already flown out there, and, and I'd read like three-fourths of, of the book I was reading on the life of General George Patton, and I'd read my golf magazine, you know, all the superior stuff that I'm reading. And, and, uh, and coming back, I, you know, I just didn't have any more reading material. So, you know, I began to read my wife's Better Homes and Garden and Sky Mall, The Vomit Bag. I mean, I was just looking around for things to read. And, and she had just picked up, you know, for our amusement, uh, People Magazine, uh, their 40th anniversary issue. And, and there, there was a story in there. Uh, it's all about people. There was a story in there about famous cooks or famous chefs. And, and this guy, Mario Batelli, was uh, one of the featured cooks. And it was a Q&A kind of uh, approach. And, and uh, I was kind of intrigued by this guy. Uh, you, he's obviously a young man, right? And yet he's a millionaire 25 times over. He has a restaurant in New York, in Las Vegas, in L.A., in Hong Kong, and in Singapore. You know, he's written all kinds of books on the subject of cooking, not, you know, not something I would normally look at and, and, uh, or study. But he was kind of interesting. You know, he, he's known for wearing shorts in the kitchen and orange Crocs and usually a scarf. You know, just, I don't know. Right away, he had my attention. And, and then the questions and answers, the first question was, what, what's your uh, recipe that you're most proud of? 
he actually said teddy bear pancakes. And I thought, got to love this guy. <laughs> I mean, he's an expert on Italian cuisine, and he said teddy bear can- pancakes. And, and then they, they asked this question. They said, spill the beans. What's your sneakiest chef ingredient? And he said, well, if you don't mind, he said, years ago, I learned to make this incredible chocolate mousse using heavy cream and Nestle's Quick. <laughs> you just got to love that guy. And then he said, uh, I've also been known to use Spam, and I have a secret love for Velveeta. It's an incredible ingredient. You know, see, that's genius because we all know those things. We know about pancakes. We know about Spam. We know about Velveeta. You know, we know about uh, Nestle's Quick. But who could be a gourmet chef among us and use those kinds of ingredients? Genius. Elusive insight that once we understand, then, you know, the common person can do that as well. So we're going to be talking about the genius of gratitude. We're going to get to Romans 5 in just a minute, the first five verses. But let me first talk about what uh, the genius of gratitude is not. First of all, it's, it, it's not a, verse, uh, a virtue. It's not a lesson in virtue. Now, certainly we should all teach our children to be grateful. You know, they should write thank yous to their moms and their dads and people who give them gifts. It's an important lesson for children to learn. They should also learn to wash their hands before they come to the table. You know, they should learn to not talk with their mouth full. They should learn to open the door for a person who is uh, their elder. There's lots of lessons. Your mama should teach you that, not necessarily your pastor. It's not a lesson in virtue. It's not a lesson on the value of positive thinking either. Positive thinking has to do with a a mind change, you know, an attitude in life. And I'm not opposed to positive thinking, but uh, one of our uh, teachers, Heath Lumen, recently shared with me, because he knew I was teaching this week, an article that he read in the Harvard Business Journal. Now, what's wrong with me? I'm reading Filled and Stream, and I've got a staff person reading the Harvard Business Journal. he, he read an article on sometimes how uh, the power of positive thinking is actually detrimental to some staff people because they always expect things to turn out and therefore it takes away the incentive for them to work hard, which is the, the uh, genius of, of most achievement. So it's not just about the power of positive thinking. This is an attitude that comes from faith, not internalized. And it's not a lesson in piety either. Uh, a lot of Christians equate a certain dress style and a certain behavior with religion. You know, if you behave this way, if you speak this way, if you look this way, then you're a good Christian. As I mentioned, I was coming back from uh, this trip where I just read this book on uh, General George Patton, and, and I, was, I was telling Neil Weber earlier that uh, one of the most intriguing things was the prayer that he prayed before the Battle of Bastogne. He uses very vulgar language in addressing the Lord because that's who he was. He was crude, he was vulgar, but he was so sincere and honest. He knew that piety didn't qualify him to pray to God. He knew that the death of Jesus Christ on the cross gave him the right to call God Father. Amen? You know, it's not how we behave. Uh, Certainly our faith informs our behavior, and I'm not uh, endorsing uh, crude language or, or, uh, you know, his kind of attitude. But nevertheless, he had faith and didn't necessarily have piety. I'm not encouraging a certain kind of behavior and equating that with faith. No, the genius of gratitude is this. The genius of gratitude is an insight into the genius of God's creative design. Now, we all know something about the genius of God's creative design. If you've taken a walk um, as uh, the moon starts to come up recently, I'd be surprised if you weren't stunned 
You know, I, it's my job to take Buddy out for a walk. And in fact, he comes as soon as the sun goes down. He knows, you know, it's time. And so he comes for me to take him for a walk. And I actually said, Carol, you got to come out and see this moon. It's just rising over the trees. It was humongous, you know, incredible sight. And during my trip in Idaho, I was, I was up in the mountains. We had, we had done some hunting and we'd driven until the road got so bad you couldn't drive anymore. And then we hiked further than that. And we stood on some ridges that were eight, 9,000 feet tall. And, and there were old trees that had stood there 100 years. And I just stood there and looked at this tree that had begun to drop its limbs, you know, all around. And I thought, you know, in those 100 years, what kind of storms has this tree weathered? You know, it's just beautiful in its own way. Or there were flowers there. Or I saw a sunset and I tried to take a picture of it, but you just cannot capture uh, the image the way God has designed it. And, and, and you've seen things like that, a spider web or a flower or even a child. And, and you've just been amazed at the creative design of God. Well, that's true when we see things that he has made. But I hope that you get to a place in your life where you also step back from the truth of God and say, it's incredible that he understands that. I, I think for a lot of Christians, going back to that piety issue, uh, we believe that we should behave a certain way because, you know, that's the way to be obedient to a sovereign God. When in fact, God isn't the kind of God who needs his ego stroked by your behavior. You know, he, he wants you to behave a certain way. He wants you to live a certain way because it's good for you. The Ten Commandments are not given so that we can make ourselves pleasing to God. The death of Jesus Christ on the cross made us perfectly acceptable to the Father. No, the Ten Commandments are given because that's the best way for us to live. That's why we teach them to our children. It's the same way with this kind of genius, the genius of gratitude. It's that kind of stunning insight and beauty that will change your life. That's why your Father wants you to be grateful people. Not so that you can always, you know, hey, God, thank you for this. Hey, God, thank you for that. You know, that, that's great for you to do. And you should be aware that all blessings flow from the Father of lights with whom there is no variation, no shifting shadow, James says. But more so, so that you can receive the blessing from such an approach to life. Now, there's linkage in this concept. And I don't think you can see the genius unless you understand the linkage. And, and let me just walk you through it and then we'll get to our text. First of all... Grateful people have a perspective. They are mindful of blessings. One of the reasons we teach our kids to be thankful is, you know, they become aware. Man, I've got some good stuff happening in my life. It doesn't happen to everybody, and I should stop and just acknowledge that. So they become mindful of blessings. People who are mindful of blessings focus on the good in life. There's plenty of stuff in life that's not good. But grateful people tend to see the stuff that is good, while other people only focus on that which is troublesome. People who focus on the good in life naturally become more optimistic. They expect good things to happen. That's why perspective leads to optimism. People who are more optimistic tend to be more courageous. Why wouldn't you be? You expect good things to happen. You're anticipating that God is going to favor you because God loves you. He's shown it in Christ Jesus. So they tend to be more courageous. Courageous people attempt more in life. Of course they do. You know, they're courageous. They're going to do things that other people would be uh, too hesitant to try because they're optimistic. And because they attempt more things, guess what? They achieve more things. More, more times at bat, more hits. That's typically the way it works. 
People who achieve more experience more blessings. More blessings, more gratitude, and the cycle continues. Aren't you amazed? I mean, it's, it's that kind of genius. It's, a, it's an elusive concept. It's an elusive idea. And once you understand it, it can transform your existence. That's why God wants you to be grateful. Not so that he can have his ego stroked and you can say, thank you, God. But so that you might be blessed with a different approach to life. Now, last week, Pastor Dion talked to us about perspective, and uh, it was true. He, he spoke out of entirely the book of Philippians, and, and Paul was in prison at the time that he wrote that book, and yet that book is commonly referred to as the epistle or the letter of joy. He was in prison, and he was in prison for an offense that could lead to the end of his life. But Paul didn't look at it that way. Paul said, you know, I'm in prison and the entire Roman guard is talking about Jesus. They're talking about why I'm in prison. And, and he said, what an awesome thing. <laughs> Incredible. He could say that's an awesome thing. But not only was his perspective positive, he also had a positive view of his future. He goes on to say in that very chapter, first chapter, he says, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. Yeah, I, I don't know what's going to happen. If I live... Christ lives in me. If I die, I'm the better for it. Optimistic about his future, even if it meant death. If I am to go on living in the body, this will mean fruitful labor for me. Yet I'm hard-pressed. I don't know what to choose. I'm torn between the two. I desire to die and be with Christ. That's far better. But I know it's more necessary for your sake that I remain, and I'm convinced that I will. I know I will remain and continue with you for your progress and joy in the faith. You know, his perspective led to optimism. Well, let's uh, get on with it. We're going to look at Romans chapter 5, and I'm going to take these verses in three different portions. Verses 1 and 2, 3 and 4, and then verse 5 on its own. So a lesson in gratitude that leads to optimism. Verses 1 and 2. Therefore, since we have been justified through faith, Again, last week, Pastor Garrett concluded his message by saying, even if you can't see it, even if you can't notice the blessings in your life because the dark is, is crowding out the sun for you, you should at least know that Jesus died for you, that God loves you, and he's prepared heaven for you because of the sacrifice that his son made. He ended with that message, and that was a proper way to end. Today, he starts with that message. He says, this is a message for Christians. Those of you who have already been justified, and, and the word justified is kind of a Bible word. We don't use it much today in our culture, but it means made perfect. Because you've been declared innocent, doesn't mean you are innocent, but because you've been made perfect or because you've been forgiven all your sins, because you've uh, been forgiven through faith, you have peace with God. How does that change your life? You know, Jesus died for me, therefore, I don't just plan on going to heaven. I know that even now, God will treat me like a favored son. I know that I can pray to him, and like a loving father responds to a child that uh, he's passionate about, I have peace. I'm not worried about my sin. It doesn't block my presentation to God because of my Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have gained access by faith into his grace. It's enabled me to have a relationship with God that I couldn't before I knew that I was forgiven. And I now stand in that grace. You know, I live in grace. I don't have to achieve it. 
I don't fall out of grace. It's undeserved love. And we boast in the hope of the glory of God. We boast in the hope of the glory of God. Because we have been saved, because we have peace with God, because we have access through faith to God's throne now, because that's a given, we can now have hope in the glory of God. It changes my perspective looking forward. I have hope. It's fascinating the way the Bible defines hope in Hebrews chapter 6. It's a very simple passage. That, in fact, if you look at my Bible, I, I, I color in my Bible. I, 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 once, I once actually in third grade uh, got sent to the cloak hall and got spanked for writing in my Bible because that was a sacred book. But Mr. Trzinka isn't here anymore, so I write all over my Bible. And, uh, and uh, I'm sure he just didn't understand. You know, he thought I was being sacrilegious. But uh, in my Bible on this page, I have drawn an anchor. And in fact, I remember my Bible visually, and, and there's an anchor in my Bible, and it's a great image for Christians. You will see anchors in stained glass windows. If you go down to the Basilica uh, and look at their beautiful mosaics, you'll see anchors. And, and people will, who explain these things will say, well, the reason there are anchors as a Christian symbol is, first of all, uh, the top of the anchor makes a cross, typically. You know, there's that, there's that piece across the top. So, you know, that, that makes a cross. And, and, and Paul was a missionary, and he often traveled by boat, and so that's why we use anchors. That's not it. The Bible says, our faith is an anchor for our soul. What a powerful image. Anchors keep you safe. They don't mean that you don't face the storms, but the anchors keep you from going on the rocks, secure in the storm. Anchors are your lifeline. You know, who would possibly sail without an anchor? You know, we have this anchor, and our anchor is faith, and it keeps us secure, it keeps us safe. So Paul begins by saying, you know, we have hope because we have an anchor, and our anchor is faith. Let's continue with verses 3 and 4. Not only this, not only are we secure uh, about our future, we also can thank God for suffering. Who would do that? We can be happy about our suffering. We can rejoice. We can even brag about our suffering. Why? Because we know what God does with suffering. We know that through suffering, he produces perseverance. We know that perseverance produces character. And we know that character, again, leads to a confidence about the future. It leads to a blessing. The question for today is, can realistic people be optimistic? And can optimistic people be realistic? This is not a denial of suffering. It's not a denial of the difficulty of your life. Let me just read to you Paul's testimony about his own life. He said, are the other apostles servants of Christ? Of course they are. And if they are, I am even more so. For I have been imprisoned. Five times I have received the 39 lashes from the Jews. 39 lashes sometimes killed a person. Five times. Can you imagine what Paul's back looked like? 39 times I have received the, uh, and I received the Jews 39 lashes five times. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Usually people don't survive that. Three times I was shipwrecked. 
A day and a night I spent adrift on the ocean. That would be a scary thought. I have been on frequent journeys in danger from rivers, danger from robbers, dangers from countrymen, dangers from Gentiles, dangers in the city, dangers in the wilderness, dangers on the high seas, dangers because people betrayed me. I have suffered labor and hardship, endured many a sleepless night, have been hungry and thirsty, often without food, experienced cold and exposure. And apart from all of these external things, there has been the daily pressure that I have out of my concern for all the churches that God has asked me to minister to. Now, Paul was not denying his reality. So I'm not asking you to, uh, you know, suck it up and, and just pay attention to good stuff in your life. Paul said, I even pay attention to my struggles, my suffering, because I know God's going to make me persevere through this. You know, and, and that's going to be an incredible thing to offer, to watch. And I know that perseverance is going to produce character. And I know I'm going to be a, a more mature person, and that character is going to turn into hope for me. It's not that God causes these things. God doesn't. God only desires to bless and prosper you. But the Bible does say God can cause all things to work together for good to those who love him and are called according to his purpose. You know, all the nasty stuff that you're enduring in life. And some of it is almost more than you can bear. God can cause all things, even those things, to work together for your good. To create perseverance, to create character, to create hope for those who are called according to his purpose. There's a tremendous quote by Oswald Chambers. Oswald Chambers was a, a Christian teacher who had the nation's attention in Britain in the late 1800s. Uh, he actually died in 1917. And his family later published some of his devotionals in 1924, um, six years after his death, or seven. Uh, seven years after his death, they published this uh, book called My Utmost for His Highest. It's still one of the best-selling devotional books that you can buy today. Uh, the Old English is difficult to read, but they've even updated the language. I would encourage you to pick up a copy and study it. Uh, he was a man that was wise in the ways of God. He wrote, the things we try to avoid and fight against, tribulation, suffering, and persecution, are the very things that produce abundant joy within us. A lot of people don't see that. A lot of people don't get that. There's a scripture that actually says, you know, the foolishness of God is wiser than the wisdom of men. This is uh, genius. It's elusive insight that God has prepared for those who know him. Paul said, we do speak a message of wisdom among the mature. It's not the wisdom that the world knows. No, this is God's secret wisdom, a mystery that has been hidden which God has destined for us, for our glory, even before time began. None of the rulers of this age will understand it. You know, they'll just say bad is bad and good is good. We say bad can be good. God can take bad and make something wonderful out of it. Because we have this insight. If they had known it, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. You know, God can even use our troubles and our difficulties to produce a future hope. Let's finish with verse 5. And this hope does not put us to shame. It's kind of an odd way to say something. This hope does not put us to shame. In other words, we're not going to be embarrassed or uh, apologize for having false hope. You know, it's not going to be something that proves to be 
useless in our life because God never fails on his promise from God's perspective, not from man's. Our hope will not put us to shame. We're not going to be embarrassed about having this hope because God's love has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit whom he has given us. Because God has inspired us to see things differently than everybody else sees things. And as a result, this optimism leads to courage, leads to attempts, leads to accomplishment, leads to gratitude, and on and on and on it goes. God's hope never fails. Even in the difficulties that we face, we say God must be doing this for some reason because I know he loves me and I know he has all authority in heaven on earth. I know he puts the sun in the sky and he does these incredible miraculous things. So I know if he wanted to, he could redeem me from this. We're hard pressed in both directions. You know, to go on living or to die, I don't care. We can finally get to where Paul was. To die is far better. Hope is not a denial of present reality. Hope is seeing the world through God's reality. And that's a different thing. You know, a while back I I was teaching and and, uh, this picture depicts spiritual warfare. Things that we don't see that go on all around us. You know, God's perspective is you don't even know what's going on. You can't even understand what I'm doing. But believe me, I'm actively engaged in your life. A few weeks ago I was preaching uh, on Moses and and we were kind of having fun with it. The images we were putting on the board behind me uh, were all from Prince of Egypt. You know, it's, I don't know how old it is. I'm sure it's more than 10 years old now, but it's an animated story about the life of Moses. And I was talking about Moses, so we pulled up those pictures. And it just reminded me that, you know, our five-year-old granddaughter has not yet seen uh, uh, Prince of Egypt. And so one night... Uh, we uh, pulled up Netflix and we found Prince of Egypt and I wasn't sure it would hold her attention. It's kind of a serious film. Uh, but yet there's some fun songs in it. And, and she hung in there. We were, we were amazed. We were watching her and she was watching the film. And, and uh, uh, she hung in there and largely because we every year give children children's Bibles that, that have images in it. You know, it's a picture Bible. And she had read the story of Moses. She was actually telling us what was going to happen. It was just the most fun evening. And, and there's also some great music in there. In, in fact, there's, there's a depiction when Moses is fighting uh, with the magicians of Egypt. You know, he's turning his staff into a snake, and they do the same. And there's a song that goes on, you're playing with the big boys now. And she kind of liked that, you know. It was, you know, these evil magicians were saying, Moses, you know, who do you think we are? And they were putting him down. And there's another incredible song we used at Christmas a while back called uh, There Can Be Miracles for Those Who Believe. You know, it was an incredible pop song as well. But there's one that I especially love, and I couldn't wait to hear it. And it was called Through Heaven's Eyes. You know, if you could just see your life through heaven's eyes, instead of an earthly perspective, if you could have a heavenly perspective, who would not be optimistic? Who would not expect favor in their life? Here's how the lyrics to that song goes. A single thread in a tapestry though its color brightly shines, can never see its purpose in the pattern of the great design. You know, our life is filling some greater purpose that we can't always see. And the stone that sits on the very top of the mountain's mighty face never thinks it's more important than the stone that forms its base. So how can you see, how can you know what your life is worth or where your value lies? You can never see through the eyes of men You must look through, you must look through, you must look through. And then the big chorus, heaven's eyes. You know, to see your life as God sees your life, who would not be positive? 
who would not have a different perspective? Who would not be optimistic about the future if we had heaven's eyes? There's a scripture that informs us in the same way, the same uh, focus. Colossians chapter 3, Paul's letter to the church at Colossae. Since you have been raised with Christ, again, since you have been justified, since you stand in grace, set your eyes or set your mind on things above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Have heaven's eyes. Set your mind on things above, not on earthly things. You know, have a different perspective in life that will lead to a different future. Just putting it into practice, let's just think about some ways in which we can apply this in our life. First of all, pray to remember not forget hardships. You know, when I visit hospitals and people are going through a hard time or, or counsel somebody or, or talk to somebody or even pray up front, uh, I often say, Lord, let them never forget not just the moment they're going through, but even the emotions they're feeling so that when you redeem them from this trouble, that they will, they will take forward this powerful lesson into the future. Remember when Jesus challenged Peter and said, before the night is over, you will deny me three times? And Peter said, never happened, won't happen, and it did. Jesus also said, and when you recover, use this to strengthen your brethren. You know, pray to remember, not forget, Peter, and so should we. Look back in order to go forward. You know, recall what God has done. In his Bible, yes, you know, these things have been written for our instruction that we might believe and see how God acts in history. But also look back on your life. Look back on the life of others that you know who have been faithful and and see how that has turned out for them. And use your past to inform your future. And then finally, let go and let God. You know, know what you can do and engage in what you can do. But trust God to fill the vacuum. You know, one of, one of my common prayers I've mentioned here before is just, Lord, you know. Lord, you know. Lord, you know. In Jesus' name, amen. Like, I don't even know how to pray about this. I don't even know what I want you to do. But I trust you to do something. And I expect that you will. Because you love me and you have all power in heaven and on earth. Amen. I'm going to ask you to rise. Uh, We've been talking about hope, and hope does not disappoint us. But our hope is not just positive thinking. Our hope has a basis in fact. Our hope is based on the history of God's interaction with his people. Our hope is based on the cross. Our hope is based on the empty tomb. Our hope is in Christ. We sing this song together.